Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. In just a few minutes, we're going to have Congressman Tom McClintock from the great state of California. He's a man who late last week gave a floor speech about uh, uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom that just went viral, caught so many people's attention, caught the hypocrisy of all of the, the lockdown artists who have imposed lockdowns on the American people, but not followed them themselves, as you know. Uh, Governor Newsom went to a big group dinner in violation of his own policy, apparently. Uh, We had Nancy Pelosi going to the hairdresser at a time. We've had many other examples, uh, California legislators going to Hawaii. Uh, We had um, uh, other other governors, you know, taking actions uh, that were inconsistent. Governor Whitmer and a vacation home. A lot of different things have surfaced to show the gap between what our governors and our leaders have said they should do in these lockdown states and what they actually do themselves. And he he hit this speech out of the park. A lot of people have been talking about it. We invited him on to come give us his sentiments on on what's happening. Um, it not only was a fun speech in terms of turning the hypocrisy around on the lockdown uh, leaders of America, but it also was full of a lot of statistics from the CDC on survival rates, on the differences between states that stayed open and uh, have remained locked down for the entire period and the mortality rates and in some cases the open states have been doing much better on mortality rates and he points it out i think he used utah as one of the examples in his speech uh, we're going to bring him here to talk about it the challenges of being a republican in california being a, a liberty lover in california in an era where so much is um, locked down for so very long now uh, going to be a great conversation i know you're going to look forward to it before we do that i wanted to um, pivot to one thing we continue to do our election integrity investigation here we found a lot of things every day you're getting a list of what we find we put it out when we can we try to give you the latest and most important uh, information but we're also vetting in case joe biden does uh, ultimately be declared the winner and, and get inaugurated on january 20th of 2021 we're continuing to look at the people he's surrounding himself with the people that are doing his work and and going to be his appointees and be in positions of authority the national security uh, side particularly in this morning we had an important story my colleague and i christine dolan uh, on two of those appointees uh, that um uh, he has named his national security advisor jake sullivan and his uh, choice for secretary of state um, uh, Tony Blinken, Anthony uh, Blinken is, is a formal name, goes by Tony. Now, listen, in the national security establishment of Washington, uh, the, uh, the security bureaucracy, these are very popular picks. These are people that are well-liked, both in the Republican and the Democratic side. But both of them played pretty significant roles in Obama-era scandals. Uh, Jake Sullivan was one of the most prolific users of Hillary Clinton's private email server. He admitted doing state government business on her private email server in violation of the rules at the time. And it was several of his emails that were ultimately deemed to have contained top secret, secret, or other classified information, meaning he transmitted recklessly uh, information uh, over an insecure server that was the government's people's business that should have been done only on government servers, but also was of such national security import that it uh, when upon reviewed, it was determined to have been at the secret or top secret level. What are some of those examples? I put them in the story, they're worth reading, but one of those was an assessment about uh, the 
Pakistani foreign minister back in 2011 when he was upset about a U.S. attack and how they were going to deal with that. Uh, that's pretty sensitive stuff that our enemies would love to get their hand on and exploit. There were many other uh, uh, readouts, uh, some of them that he involved and involved uh, conversations with Northern Ireland during the peace talks there and the efforts to to um, keep um, a good system going between Great Britain and Ireland. Uh, I think there was one with um, Tony Blair and private work he was doing. It wasn't public behind the scenes in Northern Ireland. The sort of things that shouldn't have been transmitted on Hillary Clinton's insecure server. Jake Sullivan was the propagator of the emailer. Uh, and it's pretty certain as the Biden administration gets going that Republicans in the Senate and the House are going to be able to use this to raise questions. We talked to Tom Fitton at Judicial Watch. He's a man who sued and got a lot of those Hillary Clinton emails recovered from the State Department uh, and got the Jake Sullivan uh, deposition just about a year ago, if I remember. It was in 2019 when Jake Sullivan said, yeah, I did it. I didn't mean to, but I did it. Uh, and I wish I hadn't. Um, uh, that was a pretty big moment, perhaps one of the most important depositions in the um, uh, whole Clinton email case. But very important to focus on that and to understand the potential um, implications of that. Similarly, uh, Tony Blinken, very well respected, served with Joe Biden in the Senate, uh, in the White House as a national security advisor, as vice president, then as deputy secretary of state under John Kerry. Uh, I obtained documents through FOIA lawsuits showing that Hunter Biden went to him uh, during the time when he was on the Burisma board to raise, to run some questions by him. We don't know what they were. Uh, the emails were cryptic, but we know he got at least one meeting with Blinken and Blinken you know, gleefully accepted that meeting. Uh, in addition, we know that the Blue Star Strategies legal team, the Karen Tramontano, Sally Painter team that was on a real pressure campaign, lobbying campaign at the State Department to try to get the U.S. government to change its position on Burisma, stop looking at it as a corrupt company. Oh, hey, Hunter Biden's on the board. That was one of the reminders. Um, they intercepted Blinken at a, a public event and then tried to set up a follow-up meeting to pressure them and, and get him maybe to crack down on the some of the State Department officials in the Ukraine embassy who continued to look at Burisma and, quite frankly, Blue Star's efforts in a very negative light, probably for the right reasons. Um, and uh, all of these have come out in the last year or two, most of the things that we're talking about long since they left government. Now they're going back into government, and I think with them, they drag into this new tenure of some of the early uh, and ongoing Obama-Clinton-Biden uh, scandals, Hunter Biden, Clinton email. Another thing that we know about Jake Sullivan that you can read about in the story is he admitted under oath to the House Intelligence Committee that he was among those propagating the false uh, Russia collusion story to the news media in the summer of 2016. He acknowledged talking to Fox, CNN, MSNBC, and others, uh, uh, trying to make the connections and draw, cast aspersions upon um, uh, 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 Donald Trump and his ties to Russia, which we now know to be a false narrative. But um, uh, these are the guys that are on that team. There's another one, Alejandro Moyarcus. We're going to have a big story on him tomorrow. He was the Homeland Security pick yesterday, announced by Joe Biden, should he become president on January 20th. You won't believe what the IG found about him and his dealings with immigrant visas. Big controversy, big scandal. There were even hearings about it. So some of these Obama uh, uh, reverbs, people that are being pulled out of the Obama administration to now come work with Joe Biden should he win the White House.
playoffs and be declared the winner on January 20th. Um, they bring with them a lot of the ugly scandal baggage that occurred in the Obama administration. Remember, Joe Biden used to like to say there wasn't a hint of scandal in the Obama years. Well, there was. The Clinton email server was just one of many. We had the uh, gun running scandal, Fast and Furious. We had the Mayorkas EB-5 visa scandal. We had the Hunter Biden uh, influence peddling scandal, the getting rich off of the Biden portfolio. Um, many, and then we had the effort to turn the intelligence community into an opposition research arm that became the Russia collusion unmasking uh, controversies. Uh, anyone who tells you the Obama administration was uh, scandal free doesn't know the facts or is intentionally and willfully ignoring them. These picks, these appointees, all remind us of that and we're going to um, continue to dig into that in case Joe Biden becomes the 46th president of the United States uh, but we're of course waiting for the president's legal appeals to play out we're doing our own election integrity stuff every day keeping you informed at justthenews.com so check us out all right we're going to go to that commercial break uh, remember to sponsor our great sponsors and advertisers they're great people support them remind them that you love them because they support us here make our journalism possible when we come back the congressman from California, Tom McClintock, joins us in just a few minutes. We'll be right back. Hey, folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest indeed. We've had him on before, and we can't wait to have him back on again. Congressman Tom McClintock from the great state of California joins us. Congressman, good to have you on the show. Oh, it's good to be back, John. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a, it's an honor to have you on. And um, you are in the, in a state where there's been basically a permanent lockdown since early this year, uh, yet coronaviruses continue growing there, just like they are everywhere Tell us what what is it like to be in California and and to be under the Gavin Newsom sort of regime of uh, of um, lockdown. Well, I think more and more people are ignoring him and going about their daily affairs just as as he has been doing in defiance of his own idiotic edicts. That's a, a good example that he set for the rest of us to ignore this stupidity and and just do what free citizens always do in a free society, and that is we assess the risks. We decide for ourselves what precautions we're going to take, what risks we're willing to run, uh, and, uh, and then we make informed decisions based on our own circumstances. Uh, the, the problem is a lot of businesses don't have that luxury because the state is capable through the intricate 
web of uh, licenses uh, to shut these businesses down. Uh, a lot of them have gone out of business. Uh, I mean, my God, looking at downtown Sacramento these days would absolutely break your heart. That's what I'm told. Uh, uh, right, Ghost right town, right? The street, right across the street from the Capitol. Uh, I'd say about a third of the uh, businesses are boarded up. Another third are simply abandoned. They're closed. They're you know just empty shells. Uh, uh, there's no activity on the streets other than the homeless would have taken over entire sections of sidewalk and uh, L Street, which runs right past the Capitol building, reeks of human urine. Uh, it's it's just tragic to, to see in here. It's such a great state and so many great cities and great people in California. And um, uh, you can see just from the photos and the people I talk to that not only the, the desolation, but also the frustration with with watching government not be able to solve uh, or come up with, yeah, it really it, is. It, it, it's like you know watching some dystopian uh, uh, movie, but it's the real life under the the kind of petty dictatorship that we've seen imposed in this state and and so many others. And we also have to remember this: go to the CDC's own website. Yeah, their own best estimate is that the recovery rate for those under age forty nine is 99.92%. If you're under 49 years old uh, and, you, and you happen to get COVID, survival rate 99.92%. If you're over 70 in that most extreme high-risk group and you get it, the survival rate is 94.6%. Yeah, almost 95%. Yeah. And, and, and this comes directly from the CDC. And again, according to the CDC, 40% of the people who get it don't even know they have it. That's, uh, those are remarkable statistics. We have to remind ourselves because the media has done such a good job of scaring us into, into um, being hunched over when, in fact, there's a, a more rational way to deal with this. You gave a speech on the floor of the House that uh, I think a lot of people, probably millions of people, have now seen. And uh, the title is a little, um, a little amusing. In defense of Governor Newsom, what what gave you uh, the inspiration to stand up on the floor and and say that you you were glad to see that Governor Newsom had defied his own idiotic COVID edicts? Uh, it was quite a quite a moment. What what inspired you to do so? And what's the reaction been like? Uh, well, what inspired me was simply the fact this is what we all ought to be doing. And and, and you know when you see all of these lockdown leftists ignoring their own orders. And it's not just Gavin Newsom. You know, here in California, we had a big delegation of uh, legislators recently ignore all the travel restrictions. Go to Hawaii, uh, right? And, and junk it to Hawaii. <laughs> and of course, the, the, the famous video of, um, of Nancy Pelosi. Right. Uh, Gotta uh, have that hairdresser. Her, her own advice, yeah, of uh, going to, to a hair salon that's been closed to the rest of us uh, and then not wearing a mask in it. Um, well, I'm not going to criticize that. That is an informed decision. That's what free people do. And, you know, you, you, you look at, at uh, for example, Sweden. Sweden never issued mask mandates. Right. They never closed any of their businesses. They never closed any of their schools. Their mortality rate from COVID is substantially lower than the United States. They've had two uh, uh, spikes of it. Uh, one occurring at the beginning, right. it was 33 days from the first death to the peak levels of death, then a then a steady decline after that. All through uh, June, July, August, uh, September, they had it was uh, all but over. They've since, along with the rest of the world, had a much smaller spike, but it follows that same ferrous viral curve. And if you look at the mortality rate in um, in Sweden today, 
it's exactly the same as we're seeing in California. The difference is California has destroyed its economy and Sweden has saved its economy. The, um, in your speech, there was a line that really caught my my ear uh, in in recognizing that there are just two uh, with this COVID crisis. There have been there are two very clear, very different visions of governance. And I'll just read this line because it really jumped out to me. And I want our, our listeners to hear it, and then we can talk about it. Every time we step outside our home, the risk we face multiply. That's absolutely true. A free society assumes that its citizens are competent to assess those risks, balance them against the avoidance costs, and to manage their decisions in a generally responsible way. It's called common sense, and it's a necessary prerequisite for self-government and liberty. Um, that is a very strong, powerful line when you, when you take it apart and you understand what you're saying, because it really, this is the DNA of America. It's what our founding fathers imagined our country to be full of common sense and yet always, uh, deferential to freedom. How did we get to a point in, in this country where freedom is almost an afterthought? And, and, you know, one was a tipping point. When, when do you, when do you see us be willing to surrender so much of our freedom in the name of governance? I, I think fear blind hysterical fear uh, has driven a lot of this you know quarantine for example that's the forced confinement of a person who's got a an infectious disease we right. tell them stay at home until you get over it uh, you don't usually have to issue a quarantine order most people who are sick don't like to go out anyway but but that's a legitimate power of government what they've done is something fundamentally different they're now quarantining an entire healthy population on the pretext they might catch an infectious disease uh, that is completely without precedent. And I, I think a lot of it goes to the fact that you have in ascendance in American politics a highly authoritarian leftist cohort that is in charge of a number of states and a number of communities. And I think it comes back to that, that age-old question that, that Cecil B. DeMille framed in, in his introduction to the Ten Commandments. Are men the property of the state or are they free souls under God? Uh, and, and I think that's the, the, the fundamental question. There's a, um, uh, in the common sense category, as your, as your speech went on, you, you, you point, you know, the, the liberals have talked and Joe Biden talks about constantly, we're going to let science drive this. We're going to let science drive this. I'm going to read this line too, because it, it just smacks of such common sense that we've all missed in this debate. The science tells us that outdoor transmissions of the virus are extremely rare and that 80% of infections occur in people's homes. So what did these lockdown leftists do? They closed our beaches, parks, and campgrounds and ordered people to stay at home. That's a pretty powerful statement. Um, the, the science, what, what have we learned about public health science, the Fauci's of the world, the Reddingfelds of the world? Um, when you look out all the billions of dollars we spent in preparation of pandemic and science, do you feel like the taxpayers have gotten their money that we got good advice in this um, pandemic? I, I, well, I think the action to uh, uh, produce a, a highly accelerated response for vaccine development was yeah. the right thing to do. And I entirely credit uh, Donald Trump and his administration for that. Um, I frankly was skeptical. I mean, you know, coming up with a vaccine is easier said than done. We've yeah. been looking for a vaccine for uh, 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 HIV right. uh, 30 uh, for three years, 45 yeah. years now and, and still haven't come up with one. Uh, we have plenty of experience with other strains of coronavirus. Uh, 25% of common colds are various strains of coronavirus. Right. Um, and yet we've never come up with a vaccine for any of them until now, and we did so in record time. So I, I think that was the appropriate response to take. Uh, but the, the uh, unprecedented social control 
that they've tried to impose simply hasn't worked. And again, you can see that the the, the states uh, in this country that had the most severe uh, lockdowns have generally had the highest mortality rates. And the states that have had the least restrictive measures generally have had the uh, the lowest mortality rates. What we have seen happen, though, is not only have these lockdowns not saved lives, they have cost countless lives. Uh, uh, suicide, uh, they call them deaths of despair, suicides, right. uh, drug and alcohol-related deaths, domestic violence, uh, not to mention the enormous number of deferred health treatments and health screenings uh, that are, are going to be with us uh, in, in terms of higher mortality for years to come now because people didn't get either the treatment they needed or the screening that they needed when it would have made a difference. Yeah, those are consequences that just weren't put into the calculation when all well, of these lockdown orders came well, in. Let me put it into, into real perspective. I was talking to a deputy sheriff from Placer County uh, recently, or not recently, it was back in May. At the time, we'd had seven deaths in um, in uh, Placer County from COVID. And he says, everybody's, you know, that that's all the people care about are the seven people who've, who've died of, of COVID in this county. Nobody seems to give a damn about the 613 teenagers that have tried to kill themselves. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that, that, that's a big disparity, 613 versus 7. That is, we, um, will we learn from this? And, and, and if, if we are to learn from it, how do we learn? Because we're so polarized. The, the left is absolutely certain they've done the right thing. Donald Trump's absolutely certain he's done the right thing and his team. Uh, is there any common sense engagement in the middle that says, you know, we ought to learn from this and, and not repeat this mistake as, we, as we've gone through it? Um, do you see anyone capable of pulling the country together and having that sort of a conversation? I think the country is already starting to come around to this. As I said, all mass hysterias are driven by blind fear. And this is not the first time that a fear-driven hysteria has has, uh, uh, run through a population. Every time in history that this has happened, there's always a moment when this fear fever breaks and the hysteria suddenly burns itself out. That was true of the French Revolution, the right. Salem witch trials, the communist hysteria of, of, of the 50s. There comes a moment when the absurdity of it all becomes so apparent that it overcomes the hysteria. And I'm starting to wonder if, uh, if Newsom's curfew, coupled with the draconian measures being taken by other governors and by the utter hypocrisy of their own unwillingness to comply with the edicts that they are forcing on everybody else. I'm starting to wonder if that hasn't kind of gotten a hold of the American public. Now, I mean, we're seeing it in California. Yeah, um, definitely are. And, and people are simply saying, wait a second. 99.92% chance of recovery for those under 49. Uh, why would we, over that tiny a, a, a individual threat, entirely destroy our economy, throw millions of Americans out of work. Uh, uh, this this just doesn't make any sense. There's always that emperor's new clothes moment in these public hysterias where the public suddenly realizes this is BS and, and we're not going to go any further down this road. And we're going to start holding accountable all of the people who impose this on us. It's going to be very interesting to see uh, how the um, uh, elections in a couple of years for state officials and local officials uh, turn on this issue. Yeah, there's even a recall, if I read correctly, a recall effort on uh, Gavin Newsom that has gotten more life from an appeals court or is allowed to continue on. Do you think that uh, that there'll be that big a reaction to New- Newsom or does it wait for the next election to to sort itself out? 
Well, we did have one recall election in 2003. Uh, That's right. Uh, uh, that was successful against the governor. Right. Uh, Davis did far, far less damage to California to, uh, to, to, to justify that recall than Gavin Newsom has done. Uh, there's some speculation he may just pull the ejection lever and, and uh, appoint himself to replace Kamala Harris in the Senate. <laughs> but I, I don't think that will be—I don't think that will be enough. He will still have to face voters, and he will still have to answer for the enormous uh, damage that he's done to to the quality of life of of everyone in California. Yeah, it's it's real palpable when I talk to folks here. I mean, the level of frustration is 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 at a boil now, and. Um, and they really haven't seen the benefit of any of the things that happened, just the destruction. I want to pivot to another issue because um, uh, I know we've all talked about it before, but the election and what we saw play out here, whether it was mail-in ballots, the irregularities that are documented, the ones that are worried about. Um, when you step back at 30,000 feet, you, you do a great job of kind of looking, uh, looking down and seeing the big picture. Uh, what is the lesson of the 2020 election that the American public, its leaders need to take from, from what, just, what we just went through? Uh, we have to go back to in-person election day voting. Um, uh, uh, that is absolutely critical. Um, again, the the uh, challenges to the election are working the way through administrative review and judicial review. Um, I know so far, uh, uh, the uh, amount of fraud that has actually been proven is less than the um, uh, margin of, of victory. Right. So it doesn't look like it's going to change uh, the, the legal outcome. But we have to ask ourselves why so many Americans currently believe that this election was riddled with fraud. And I think the reason is because we've removed all of the safeguards that, that have been built into the system. We, we call it election day for a reason. Um, until uh, recently, we would all wait until the campaigns were over. Every candidate had had their say. And then on a single day, election day, we went to the local polling place. It was uh, uh, usually in a uh, neighbor's garage or at the local elementary school. We went there ourselves personally. We brought our children to watch the process. We taught them to respect it. Each of us looked our neighbors in the eye when they handed us our ballot. We signed the voter roll, um, uh, uh, took that ballot in immediately into a curtain booth where nobody could follow us in. Nobody could look over our shoulders. A dominating uh, a family member couldn't place us under duress. There in the absolute privacy of the curtain polling booth, we cast a ballot according to our own conscience. We then took that ballot, gave it back to our neighbor. The neighbor in our presence immediately put that ballot into a locked ballot box. Right. And at 8 p.m., the, uh, we knew exactly how many ballots had been cast. The count began, and usually by 10 p.m., we knew the results of the election. Uh, there was a simple, clear chain of custody. These mail-in ballots have removed all of those uh, safeguards. We now mail millions of them out, including to, to uh, people that we know are dead or who yeah. have moved. No doubt that about is it. Then, in many states, including California, that's then followed up by ballot harvesters who can uh, uh, knock on the door, collect the surplus ballots. There is no chain of custody from the time that ballot uh, is uh, sent from the county until the time it is returned to be counted. That that's, uh, uh, is, is an open invitation to, to fraud. There is a reason 
why they don't allow mail-in drug tests, for example. Right. Yeah. There has to be yeah. a clear, simple chain of custody to assure the integrity of the vote. And it's the integrity of the vote that's the important thing. The, the vote itself is not the foundation of democracy. It's the integrity of vote because it's the integrity of the vote that gives the winner his legitimacy and it gives the loser reason to accept the results. And democracy only works because in every election, when there's a winner and a loser, the loser will at least understand that it was a fair count and of, uh, and it reflects the, the, the will of the majority, and we respect that in a democracy. You can't respect that if you can't believe it, and the mail-in balloting has completely undermined that, that, uh, that assurance of, uh, for anyone losing an election uh, that it was an absolutely fair count. And that, that's really the key. I mean, when 50% of the country doesn't trust the, the results, uh, we have a crisis whether there is a, a real problem or not because that trust translates into action and doubt. And um, I think, uh, would you like to see um, a bipartisan commission come together, come up with new rules? How do we put this toothpaste back in the tube? It was always said that once yeah. mail-in voting started, it would never stop. Uh, do you think we've passed the precipice or do you think it can be pushed back? Well, again, we don't need new rules. We need to return to the rules that we followed for uh, 240 years and that worked and worked well. There was still isolated voter fraud, but it was very, very hard to per right. uh, uh, to, to, to uh, undertake, uh, and people could be reasonably assured of the results. And like I said, uh, we knew the results within hours of the polls closing. Yep. We did. We didn't have to wait days like we've been doing. No, that's that's the big difference. Um the um, the state of the Republican Party, big gains in the House, unexpected. Donald Trump gets a record number of national votes for a Republican national candidate. Um, if Joe Biden does become president on January 20th, how do you assess the Republicans' opportunities going forward in this coalition that's been uniquely built with Donald Trump and the House Republicans and the Senate Republicans? Well, that's going to entirely depend on the outcome of the uh, two races in uh, in Georgia for the U uh, U.S. Senate. Yeah, great if, point. If the uh, left is able to uh, win both of those races, they will then control the Senate, they will control the House, and they will control the White House. This is not idle speculation. They have been crystal clear over their intentions. They've not hidden a thing. We know exactly what they're planning to do because they've told us yeah, they've been very what candid. they're planning to do. They will pack... Uh, the Supreme Court uh, with additional seats. They will pack the Senate with additional states. They will bypass the Electoral College uh, with this compact of states, which basically instructs state electors to ignore the popular vote in their own state of, uh, and leave the rural states with virtually no say in the selection of any future presidents. Uh, they will cease to enforce uh, our immigration laws. Um, uh, uh, and at that point, of uh, uh, provide uh, citizenship, fast pathway to citizenship for 22 million illegals currently in the country. Uh, they will uh, then proceed to enact the Green New Deal, uh, the, the entire socialist agenda that they've laid out, um, and open the borders. That's game set and match for the country. There's no way back from that. We will, and of course, they'll rig the election laws the way they have in California. Uh, at, at that point, I don't think there's any way back. Wow. So there's that much at stake on that uh, that January election. Do you feel Republicans are inspired and they understand the stakes and they're going to put the resources and the effort into Georgia to win it? 
Well, the, the, the good news is that I think that there is going to be such uh, attention to the integrity of the vote count at any rate uh, that uh, the kind of fraud that has been alleged across the, the, the rest of the country in this election probably is going to be very, very hard to pull off uh, in, the, uh, in the Georgia runoffs. That makes you feel better, the chances for the Republicans, and clearly. Um, what is the, when, when the, this extraordinary coalition where you have a growing number of Latino voters, um, a growing number of African-American voters, blue-collar workers, there's a, a unique synergy of new entrants into the Big Ten of the Republican Party. What does the party need to do next to not only sustain that uh, coalition, but grow it? I mean, there were real signs in this election that, that um, uh, a new type of voter was entering into the Republican Party. What, what do you think needs to be done to, to nurture that and grow it? And do the party leaders have that you know, at the forefront of their imagination right now? Well, the, I, I think the reason that coalition developed is because until we took a wrecking ball to the economy, we were enjoying one of the greatest economic expansions yeah, in our nation's uh, history. And it was not by accident. It was specifically because uh, a Republican Congress and a Republican president were able to produce the biggest uh, uh, tax and regulatory relief uh, in the history of the country. It turns out if you get out of people, off people's backs and out of their faces and out of their pockets and out of their lives, they can actually prosper. And the greatest prosperity uh, in that economic expansion uh, was uh, uh, working-class Americans. Um, uh, the income gap that had grown so dramatically under Obama and Biden was going the other way. Uh, it, it was being reduced. Uh, uh, unemployment was at 50-year lows overall, and for uh, African Americans, Hispanic Americans, and women, they were the lowest unemployment rates ever recorded. People were feeling that, and I think that that is what is producing the uh, migration of um, a traditionally Democratic voters uh, to the Republican Party. There's something else going on, I think, and that is the fact that there is a huge difference between liberals and leftists. I've spent my entire life arguing with liberals over the appropriate uh, uh, size and role of government, but uh, we always shared fundamental beliefs. We believed in free speech even when we disagreed with it. We uh, uh, believed in our Bill of Rights in the Constitution. We believed in our uh, we, we, uh, our flag. We we had a pride of uh, the American principles that brought about this country. The left shares none of these things. Uh, the, the 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 left uh, sneers at free speech. Uh, the left doesn't believe we should be judged on the content of our character and not the color of our skin. Quite the contrary. The left believes the first and most important thing about you is the color of your skin, and that's how you should be judged. Uh, uh, they despise the Constitution. They uh, despise due process of law. They practice the rule of the mob. These, these leftists share very little in common with liberals. I think liberals have far more in common with conservatives now than they have with the left. And I think that's also why you're seeing a migration of traditional Democrats toward the Republican Party. Yeah, that's such an important dynamic. It really is. And it's, it's, it's measurable. You can really see it in the voter data that we've analyzed. We've done this election integrity project and we found, you know, many instances of people who say, I'm, 
I voted for Donald Trump and my vote is still pending. It hasn't been counted. That's been documented. It's irrefutable. Uh, we've had some people say, I didn't request the ballot yet. I'm showing I'm voting. Uh, we've had, you know, election workers say, um, uh, I, I, I engaged in backdating of ballots at Jesse Jacob in Detroit. It's unclear whether the scope of all those things are enough to have overturned the election. But when you look at who did vote in, in the two constituencies, you can see that shift in in um, in a traditionally Democratic voters leaning into the Republican Party. And uh, and I, I think that it's a uh, it's going to take the Democratic Party a couple of months to understand that they may have lost a block of voters. And, and now the Republicans have to you know, fight to keep that. Do you feel good about uh, the party's agenda? What do you think are the most important things Republicans in Congress can um, put as the center of their policy um, uh, agenda in 2021-2022? Well, I, uh, the, the campaign theme I've always had is freedom works. And if you think about it, that, that has always been the central tenet of the Republican Party, freedom. We were founded on that principle. We have always hewn to that principle. The closer we've hewn to it, the better that we've done and the better the country has done. I think our job is, is, again, to continue to educate the American people of the practical importance of freedom on their quality of lives, uh, the prosperity it produces. Uh, uh, you know, never has there been a happier, freer, more prosperous, or more just society in all of the recorded history of, of, of civilization than the United States of America, and it is specifically because of those principles. We need to continue to educate the American people just how important those principles are, not as lofty philosophical ideas, but as the as as having the the, the practical effect of producing prosperity, justice, and happiness uh, uh, for uh, every American. It's interesting. I had um, the soon-to-be youngest member of the Republican caucus in Congress, uh, Madison Cawthorn, on yesterday, and he said something very similar. And you know, he's he's a 25-year-old, so he understands Gen Z and and millennials so well because he's in that gap between them. And he said that the Republican message of freedom is beginning to resonate among a group of people that you know, got a pretty steady liberal doctrination in, in education. But as they get into the real world, the more they realize their freedom is impinged, the more they realize the Republicans are on to something. And I, I found that so interesting, you know, from a young, you're going to be your youngest member of the caucus, but he's seeing that in his generation. And uh, it seems as though there, there's this enormous opportunity in the, the aftermath of this election to, to continue to uh, make that connection to the American people. It's going to be going to be fascinating. Congressman, we can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing your thoughts. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, and I, I hope you and your family have a blessed and uh, very special Thanksgiving. John, and, and the same back to you and yours, and we will gather according to our own best judgment, and it's none of our governor's business uh, how we do that. <laughs> yeah, well, for people who need to be reminded, just watch that floor speech. We're going to send out the link to it. Uh, it was quite quite a moment, so we really enjoyed it. And, well, thank uh, you very much. All right. God bless you, sir. We'll talk to you soon. Folks, we're going to come back in a second and uh, wrap things up for the day. Temp check. 
What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer, a beach bum summer, or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door, in as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. I'm really glad you joined us today. I hope you enjoyed the little overview we gave you of some of these Biden um, advisors and what their ties are to previous scandals. A good reminder that the Obama administration was not in any way scandal-free. Uh, we have to remind people because the media do a good job of burying those scandals. But in the in the course of that, I think the conversation with Tom McClintock and what's going on in California, the possibility of a revolt against Gavin Newsom. He said some interesting things. He raised the prospect that Newsom might uh, appoint himself to Kamala Harris's seat, seat, something to watch. I hadn't heard that. That's an interesting idea. Uh, Certainly the idea that the crackdown on liberty, the uh, response to the COVID-19 that, uh, as he said, defied common sense on many uh, things, could become a a lasting political issue that continues to um, uh, support a Republican, uh, libertarian, freedom-loving agenda A lot of interesting things said there. He also talked about the need to get back to same-day voting to get over some of the crises that that this last election posed in terms of trust and and, and, uh, potential fraud. We've seen some fraud already prosecuted, uh, some being alleged, and some pretty interesting evidence statistically and otherwise. All right, we're going to be back tomorrow with another great guest. Until then, I hope you have a blessed night. I hope you're getting ready for that big Thanksgiving meal, uh, that special time with our family where we have so much to give thanks, even in the difficult year that 2020 has been. I know I'm going to be giving thanks for for many, many things. We'll be back tomorrow, including uh, uh, another great guest and some more investigative reporting here at John Solomon Reports, the podcast from justthenews.com. 